0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. As a college student, the American writer Kurt Vonnegut was a pacifist. But after the attack on Pearl Harbor, he felt compelled to enlist in the United States Army. Soon, this Indianapolis native was captured by Germans and imprisoned in Dresden. When the Allied forces came to bomb that city, he survived in the meat locker of a slaughterhouse. As a writer, Vonnegut was known for his wit and his humor, and later in life he became a kind of good-natured, even avuncular figure, turning a satirical eye on the powers that be, and offering advice like writing tips with a voice that conjures up the Dalai Lama or some other wise but playful and benign figure. But the darkness never left him. The humor was black, his suffering was real, and although he might have come in disguise as Paul McCartney singing an upbeat tune, the spirit of John Lennon was never far behind. It's getting better all the time. It can't get much worse. Vonnegut stands for both, as we might expect from a survivor who did well for himself, but who never lost his ability to see the world clearly, and who never lost the memory of that young man in the meat locker, either. Tom Roston is here today as our guest. He's written a new biography of Kurt Vonnegut. We'll hear what he learned about Vonnegut and war and life. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We'll have Tom Roston here in a moment. But first, we're going to hear from Vonnegut. What was Kurt Vonnegut exactly? A science fiction writer? Yes and no. An anthropologist? Well, the Academy rejected that, didn't they? A writer, a novelist, a leader, a prophet, a soldier. None of those fit exactly, and all of them do a little bit. He wasn't liberal or conservative either. Religion, hard to pin down. He said once, quote, The two real political parties in America are the winners and the losers. The people don't acknowledge this. They claim membership in two imaginary parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, instead. End quote. While this resonated with me, I was asked once if I wanted to be a prosecutor or a defender. Which resonated with me more? Which would you rather be? Would you want to be the one prosecuting crimes, putting bad guys in jail, or defending people, accused of them? And I said, well, it depends, doesn't it? Depends on what, Jack Wilson? Well, I'm on the side of the underdog. That's where I go. That's where I gravitate toward. So if the government is some scrappy assistant district attorney trying to take down a corrupt mayor or the richest man in town, or big tobacco, or something like that, well, he's the underdog, isn't he? But if the government is trying to railroad some 15-year-old kid who walked across the street the wrong way, they're not the underdog, are they? The kid is. Maybe these categories don't always fit. There's nuance there. There's shades of gray that we live in. Here's Kurt Vonnegut on his religion. Quote, Some of you may know that I am neither Christian nor Jewish nor Buddhist nor a conventionally religious person of any sort. I am a humanist which means in part that I have tried to behave decently without any expectation of rewards or punishments after I'm dead. I myself have written if it weren't for the message of mercy and pity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount I wouldn't want to be a human being I would just as soon be a rattlesnake end quote. Such an interesting guy. Interesting brain. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. That little writerly twist, that's what I mean by Vonnegut's humor, makes us laugh. It's darkness, but hes he's got good humor too. Let's take a break, then come back. What we're going to do today in our first segment is we're going to hear some excerpts from Kurt Vonnegut's commencement speech, a speech he gave at Agnes Scott College in 1999. Then we will have our interview with Tom Roston. That's all coming up after this. Vonnegut's speech to Agnes Scott College. This is a long delayed puberty ceremony. You are at last officially full grown women, what you were biologically by the age of fifteen or so. I am as sorry as I can be that it took so much time and money before you could at last be licensed as grown ups. Kin Hubbard a newspaper humorist in my hometown of Indianapolis when I was growing up, wrote a joke a day for the Indianapolis News. One day, I remember, he said, It's no disgrace to be poor, but it might as well be. He said this about graduation addresses. I think it would be better if colleges spread out the really important stuff over four years instead of saving it all up for the very end. But that's what you're going to get from me. All the really important stuff at the very end. I am so smart, I know what is wrong with the world. Everybody asks during and after our wars and the continuing terrorist attacks all over the globe, what's gone wrong? What has gone wrong is that too many people, including high school kids and heads of state, are obeying the code of Hammurabi a king of Babylonia who lived nearly 4,000 years ago. And you can find his code echoed in the Old Testament, too. Are you ready for this? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. A categorical imperative for all who live in obedience to the Code of Hammurabi, which includes heroes of every cowboy show and gangster show you ever saw, is this. Every injury, real or imagined, shall be avenged. Somebody's going to be really sorry. Bombs away, or whatever. When Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross, he said, Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. What kind of a man was that? Any real man, obeying the code of Hammurabi, would have said, Kill them, Dad, and all their friends and relatives, and make their deaths slow and painful. His greatest legacy to us, in my humble opinion, consists of only twelve words. They are the antidote to the poison of the Code of Hammurabi, a formula almost as compact as Albert Einstein's E equals MC squared. Jesus of Nazareth told us to say these twelve words when we prayed, Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Bye-bye, Code of Hammurabi. And for those words alone, he deserves to be called the Prince of Peace. Every act of war, every act of violence, even by a paranoid schizophrenic, celebrates Hammurabi and shows contempt for Jesus Christ. Is anybody here a Presbyterian? I want to warn you, many people have been burned alive in public for believing what you believe, so watch your backs after you get out of here. Some of you may know that I am a humanist or free thinker, as were my parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and so, not a Christian. By being a humanist, I am honoring my father and mother, which the Bible tells us is a good thing to do. But I say with all my American ancestors, if what Jesus said was good, and so much of it was absolutely beautiful, what does it matter if he was God or not? If Christ hadn't delivered the Sermon on the Mount with its message of mercy and pity, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. Revenge provokes revenge, which provokes revenge, which provokes revenge, forming an unbroken chain of death and destruction, linking nations of today to barbarous tribes of thousands and thousands of years ago. We may never dissuade leaders of our nation or any other nation from responding vengefully, violently, to every insult or injury. In this, the age of television, they will continue to find irresistible the temptation to become entertainers, to compete with movies by blowing up bridges and police stations and factories and so on. Fires, explosions, come look. Oh my gosh, hey, wow. To quote the late Irving Berlin, there's no business like show business. But in our personal lives, our inner lives at least, we can learn to live without the sick excitement, without the kick of having scores to settle with this particular person or that bunch of people or that particular institution or race or nation. And we can then reasonably ask forgiveness for our trespasses since we forgive those who trespass against us, and we can teach our children and then our grandchildren to do the same, so that they too can never be a threat to anyone. Okay? Amen. Not that there hasn't been a lot of good news along with the bad long before you got here. I am talking about the birth of works of art, music, paintings, Statues, buildings, poems, stories, plays, and essays, and movies, you bet. And humane ideas, which make us feel honored to be members of the human race. What can you yourselves contribute? You've come this far anyway, and it wasn't easy. And I now recite a famous line by the poet Robert Browning with one small change. I have replaced his word, man, which in his time was taken to mean human being. With the word woman. May I say, too, that his wife, Elizabeth Barrett, was as great a poet as he was? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways, and so on. While I'm at it, get a load of this. The atomic bomb, which we dropped on the people of Hiroshima, was first envisioned by a woman, not a man. She was, of course, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. She didn't call it an atomic bomb, she called it the monster of Frankenstein but back to Robert Browning and what he said about anyone who hopes to make the world better. Again, I've changed his word man to woman for this occasion. A woman's reach should exceed her grasp, or what's a heaven for? And of course, the original. A man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? Sigmund Freud said he didn't know what women wanted. I am so smart, I not only know what is wrong with the world, the code of Hammurabi, but I know what women want. Women want a whole lot of people to talk to. What do they want to talk about? They want to talk about everything. Men want a lot of pals, and they don't want people to get mad at them. Some of you may become psychologists or ministers In either case, you are going to have to deal with men, women, and children whose lives are being damaged by our country's astronomical divorce rate. You should know that when a husband and wife fight, it may seem to be about money or sex or power, but what they're really yelling at each other about is loneliness. What they're really saying is, you're not enough people. Back when Most human beings lived in extended families and lived in the same part of the world for the whole of their lives. A marriage was really something to celebrate. Wedding guests laugh instead of cry. The groom was going to get a lot of new pals, and the bride was going to get a whole new bunch of people to talk to about everything. Nowadays, most of us, when we marry, get just one person, and oh sure, maybe a few scruffy in-laws ready to kill each other and living hundreds of miles away if you're lucky, in some place like Vancouver, British Columbia, or Hollywood, Florida. So again, if any of you educated people find yourselves in a therapeutic situation vis-a-vis a marriage on the rocks, please realize that the real problem may not be money or sex or power or how to raise a kid. The real trouble with the wife, as far as the husband is concerned, maybe that she isn't enough people. The real trouble with the husband, as far as the wife is concerned, may be that he isn't enough people. If you determine that that really is what they've been yelling at each other about, tell them to become more people for each other by joining a synthetic extended family, like Hell's Angels, perhaps, or the American Humanist Association, with headquarters in Amherst, New York, or the nearest church. I met a man in Nigeria one time who had 600 relatives he knew quite well. His wife had just had a baby, the best possible news in any extended family. They were going to take it to meet all its relatives, of all ages and sizes and shapes. It would even meet other babies, cousins not much older than it was. Everybody who was big enough and steady enough was going to get to hold it, cuddle it, gurgle to it, and say how pretty it was or handsome. Wouldn't you have loved to be that baby? Here is a fact. This wonderful speech is already more than twice as long as the most efficient, effective oration in American history. Abraham Lincoln's address on the battlefield of Gettysburg. As I speak, the very air we breathe is vibrant with words and images from CNN. In the early days of radio, I remember, people living too close to the transmitter of KDKA in Pittsburgh used to receive soap operas in their bed springs and bridge work. And nowadays, surely, TV is such a pervasive part of so many Americans' lives that they might as well be hearing Wolf Blitzer in their bed springs and bridge work. And I have a son-in-law who has been swallowed by his computer. He disappeared into it, and I'm not sure we can ever get him back out again. And he has a wife and kids. There was a time when a graduation speaker looking out at a sea of beauty and innocence such as this one would warn you about all the sewer rats you will meet as you flow out of here and into the gutters of the real world. I mean lascivious, untruthful men, tin Casanovas, and sociopathic Luckinvars. But Cosmopolitan and Elle magazines have told you all about them and told you how to protect yourselves. If somebody says he loves you, check it out. And your state and federal governments, thank goodness, have told you not to smoke cigarettes, which are evil incarnate. Who in his or her right mind doesn't hate evil with a passion? Cigarettes are very bad for you, but cigars are very good for you. Cigars are so healthful that there is a magazine devoted to them, with pictures of cigar-smoking celebrities on the cover. Cigars, of course, are made of trail mix of nuts and raisins and granola. Why don't you all eat a cigar at bedtime tonight? No cholesterol. Firearms are also good for you. No fat, no nicotine, and no cholesterol. Ask your congressperson if this isn't true. And God bless the state and federal governments for taking such good care of the public health. I hope you know that television and computers are no more your friends and no more increasers of your brain power than slot machines. All they want is for you to sit still and buy all kinds of junk and play the stock market as though it were a game of blackjack. And only well-informed, warm-hearted people can teach other things they'll always remember and love. Computers and TV don't do that. A computer teaches a child what a computer can become. An educated human being teaches a child what a child can become. Bad men just want your bodies. TV and computers want your money, which is even more disgusting. It's so much more dehumanizing. Given a choice, wouldn't you rather have somebody like your body more than your money? Forbes magazine asked me recently what my favorite technologies were, and I said a corner mailbox, my address book, and the Encyclopedia Britannica. The Britannica is arranged alphabetically, so you can find out all kinds of stuff, if you know your ABCs and putting a letter in a corner mailbox is like feeding a great big bullfrog painted blue. I thank you for becoming educated. By becoming reasonable and informed persons, you have made this a more rational world than it was before you got here. I give you my word of honor that you graduates are near the very top of the best news I ever hear. By working so hard at becoming wise and reasonable and well-informed, you have made our little planet Our precious little moist blue green ball, a saner place than it was before you got here. Thanks, and God bless those who made it possible for you to improve your minds and souls in the company of students from every part of this country and foreign nations besides. What fun, eh? I should say. Most of you are preparing to enter fields unattractive to greedy persons, such as education and the healing arts. Teaching, may I say, is the noblest profession of all in a democracy. Some of you will become mothers. I don't recommend it, but these things happen. If that should fall your lot, you may find compensation in these words by the poet William Ross Wallace. The hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. And keep that kid the hell away from computers and TV sets unless you want it to be a lonesome imbecile who steals money from your purse so it can buy stuff. Don't give up on books. They feel so good, they're friendly heft. The sweet reluctance of their pages when you turn them with your sensitive fingertips. A large part of our brains is devoted to deciding if what our hands are touching is good or bad for us. Any brain worth a nickel knows books are good for us. And don't try to make yourself an extended family out of ghosts on the internet. Get yourself a Harley and join Hell's Angels instead. Every graduation pep talk I've ever given has ended with words about my father's kid brother, Alex Vonnegut, a Harvard-educated insurance agent in Indianapolis, who was well-read and wise. The first graduation at which I spoke, incidentally, was at what was then a women's college, Bennington, in Vermont. The Vietnam War was going on and the graduates wore no makeup to show how ashamed and sad they were. But about my Uncle Alex, who is up in heaven now. One of the things he found objectionable about human beings was that they so rarely noticed it when they were happy. He himself did his best to acknowledge it when times were sweet. We could be drinking lemonade in the shade of an apple tree in the summertime and Uncle Alex would interrupt the conversation to say, If this isn't nice, what is? So I hope that you will do the same for the rest of your lives. When things are going sweetly and peacefully, please pause a moment and then say out loud, If this isn't nice, what is? Let that be the motto of your class. If this isn't nice, what is? That's one favor I've asked of you. Now I ask for another one. I ask it not only of the graduates, but of everyone here, parents and teachers as well. I'll want a show of hands after I ask this question. How many of you have had a teacher, at any level of your education, who made you more excited to be alive, prouder to be alive, than you had previously believed possible? Hold up your hands, please. Now take down your hands and say the name of that teacher to someone else, and tell them what that teacher did for you. All done? If this isn't nice, what is? Tom Roston, after this. Joining me now is journalist Tom Roston, who has worked at The Nation and Vanity Fair and Premier Magazine, where he was a senior editor for more than a decade. He's also the author of the new book, The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five. He's here to tell us about the young Kurt Vonnegut, including Vonnegut's experiences as a soldier in World War II, and the connections between real life and Vonnegut's classic novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. Tom Roston, Welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I'm tempted to start with Vonnegut, but I think instead I want to start with war more generally and its portrayal in books and films and popular culture. And in particular, I'm interested in the way that American society has treated World War II and Vietnam, which I think will take us right into Vonnegut, who bridged the two. But just to stick with war for a moment, I think it's fair to say that the tendency in American culture was to view World War II as the good war, quote unquote, and Vietnam as a bad war or a problematic war. And we see in Steven Spielberg's making of the Nazis into sort of cartoon bad guys in Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example. Yeah. Where do you think this impulse to romanticize war comes from?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but war is an extreme state, right? War is as is terrible and extreme a thing that we can do when we kill each other? And for better or for worse, only certain people do that killing—the soldiers who are out there. And for the rest of us, I never uh, enlisted. I never was a soldier. For the rest of us who haven't ever deployed or been in the military, it's an abstract thing. And yeah, it's—it's it's, we have a culture that tries to translate the awfulness of war. And for a long time, it was bugles blaring Mm. and, you know, rah, rah, rah. And, you know, I think there you could say there's a rationale for it for certain wars. You know, I'm thinking specifically of World War Mm Two. But there's very little room for the truth about war, which is that it's awful. People die. And even for the people who, quote unquote, win, it's awful. Yeah. So we as people try to tell ourselves stories. We as a nation try to tell ourselves stories to move on. And I think that's that, that's kind of the abstract on why we have so many wars that skew the truth because we, we, there's a sense that we have to move on.
0: Yeah. So war might be necessary, and society doesn't want to to recognize the truth of war or hear the the negative side of war if it's considered to be a a war that does have a good ultimate purpose.
1: Well, it's any. I mean, it's really you, know, you think about anything anything terrible in our in our existence, whether it's domestic abuse or yeah. you know. Or toxic waste. Yeah, cancer. You, know, you, you can't. You can't end with a downer. You know, people aren't going to want to read that book or watch that movie because you know, not, I don't want to start on too much of a downer on this conversation. But you know, life is hard. Yeah. And I think for you, you look at all the most popular culture books, movies, whatever it is, uh, it makes you feel good once you're walking out the door because otherwise people just would be miserable.
0: Right. Okay. So let's move into vonnegut. Who was he? When he went to war, he was basically still a teenager, right? Or almost.
1: Yeah, he was 22 when he enlisted. He was a smart kid from Indianapolis. He had realized that he had a real gift for writing, Hmm. but he didn't do well uh, academically. So he didn't really wasn't doing great in his colleges. He was at Cornell. And then this war happened and, and he enlisted. And then tragically, his mother Killed herself mm. on Mother's Day, no less. And right. um, six months later, he was in Germany fighting in what was one of the greatest defeats for American military—the Battle of the Bulge, when the Nazis did this great, you know, awful uh, counteroffensive and killed and captured many Americans. And and Vonnegut was one of those guys that was captured, and he became a prisoner of war.
0: Right. So before we get there. Uh, just one quick question: Do we know if he was anti-war before he went? Has he talked about that, or or had he sure, been a sure. pacifist or anything like that before he enlisted?
1: Well, it's it's a good question to ask because I don't think he would have ever said, even later in life, he was anti-war. Mm-hmm. You know, even though mm-hmm. the book he wrote, you know, Slaughterhouse Five about World War II, is an anti-war book, it's too. You know, he, he's an art. He was an artist. He wouldn't go black and white on anything. It's too abstract. And he was very proud of his service during World War II. So just to answer your question, though, no, he was not anti-war going into it. He wasn't, you know, chomping at the bit to kill those Nazis necessarily. But he was he was ready to fight. And he he had a mission that he was set to do. Mm
0: -hmm. And then in addition to being a POW, he saw the bombing of Dresden.
1: Yeah. So he's captured. He's brought to a labor camp. That is, you know, for an artist such as he, a creative person, you know, he he immediately saw the irony that he was being kept underneath a slaughterhouse, Slaughterhouse Five, in Dresden. So, you know, there are these dead carcasses of animals used to be up above him, and, and then now he's this, you know, half alive prisoner of war. And being in that slaughterhouse is what saved him and his fellow prisoners of war, the 150 of them. Because uh, they were in this, like, you know, cement bunker, basically. Mm. And while the rest of Dresden was getting bombed to bits and tens of thousands of Germans were dying, these Americans were saved. Mm. And he was horrified by what he saw. He was horrified. He doesn't often, he very rarely ever says that, though, mm. directly. Yeah. Again, be- being the wry, ironic, Satirical artist that he was he very rarely would be open about that, especially later in his life Yeah, but yes he, he, in, in fact right after World War II and after he comes back to the United States and tries to write about it He did write god. That was awful many times But he found saying just that it didn't translate. Well, it was just mm. it just was too weepy and, and you know It was too political and um, it took him a while to come around to how to write about it the way he wanted to in a way that actually touched people
0: right so i've seen a theory that the way he dealt with war in dresden and dresden in slaughterhouse five was kind of an example of the way that someone with ptsd might deal with the memory or the atrocity is that your theory as well
1: yes and and i'll i'll one from Vonnegut say you know like I don't want to say exactly that's what I say because
0: yeah you
1: can't say the guy had PTSD because I'm not his therapist and right. anyway PTSD was a diagnosis that came out later but I will talk about in general his generation heck yeah this yeah. whole generation came back from war and they were like okay we're done we're done yeah. with that let's get back right. to, let's get this GI Bill great let's you know let's gung-ho we kick those nazis asses and here, away we go and then as we know you know it's a whole generation of buttoned up Silent Americans, veterans who, um, you know, a lot of them became alcoholics. I've spoken to a lot of children of uh, World War Two veterans, a lot of children who talked about their fathers who developed these like obsessive hobbies, like building stone walls in the backyard for every daylight hour because they couldn't deal with the trauma of what they had gone through. Yeah. And so. You and I you know from from this perspective could say that looks a lot like PTSD because if you look at the symptoms of PTSD and the way di- the D- PTSD is diagnosed, you know, it's, you look at denial, mm. you know, you got that, you've got extreme uh, emotional outbursts, you've got that, you've got numbness, alcoholism, you know, th- there are a lot of things that just they just correlate so seamlessly from how that generation dealt with their war to uh, what today is the diagnosis of PTSD. So, I mean, I think it's a fair thing to to think about and to discuss. I wouldn't, and I don't in my book say, yes, he had PTSD.
0: Right, but the use of science fiction conceit or the space alien, you know, the interplanetary travel, it's viewed, I guess, as a retreat from reality that people say that would be, whether or not Vonnegut had PTSD, that would be relatable to people who have gone through something similar in their attempts to deal with something horrible that they've witnessed
1: definitely and and i just want to note look what we've done we've already slipped from talking about vonnegut we're talking about billy pilgrim now right yeah so right. the the line between author and character we've got to be aware of that and we've got to be aware that vonnegut himself was the one who skewed that you know he, he was the one who put himself in his book and wrote a whole story about a character about something that he himself had gone through so we're just I just wanted to know let's you know we're, we're, we're doing it right now exactly we're falling into that fictional realm when we're also talking about a nonfiction person, Vonnegut. but yeah, the alien travel, the jumping in time, jumping in time that's exactly what a flashback is right That's like the most cliched thing that we know that is a symptom of PTSD or characteristic of PTSD, which is you know the soldiers go back to that moment and they can't get out of it you know you're, they're walking down a street, and suddenly they think they're in, you know, in a, mm. in a mud patty and a rice patty in, in Vietnam. And as awful as that is to the person experiencing it for Billy Pilgrim, the character, it's this weird, like almost trippy, goofy thing where he jumps in time, which is what makes, I think, the novel so genius. Because Vonnegut makes this is, comes back to what we were talking about before. Vonnegut makes something awful not seem so awful and allows us to actually digest it.
0: Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask, because it, maybe this is a distinction without a difference, but it it almost seems like, from what you were saying earlier, he had come to believe that when he talked about things more directly, he wasn't getting at the truth in some sense, or the reality of it, or he couldn't convey what he wanted to convey about the experience, that he needed to come at it through a kind of angle Yeah, that helped him get his artistic
1: point across. Exactly, and it's no different from what Picasso might do when he depicts war Mm. with, you know, he doesn't do a realistic painting, right? Right. To to, to feel the the grimness and the absurdity of war, you can't just say war sucks and it's it's absurd. You've gotta create this imaginary uh, storyline or this image and uh, yeah, Vonnegut did it in spades. So
0: the book came out in 1969. How did he become a cultural figure to the Vietnam War movement?
1: For lack of a better word, I think Vonnegut was lucky, uh, mm-hmm. even though it took him twenty, you know, more than two decades to, to write this book about his war, World War II. It just so happened that he published it right in the middle of this other terrible war. And it allowed people to really see what he was talking about, because they applied it to their war. The younger generation applied it to Vietnam. And they didn't so much think of it in terms of World War II. They were out in the streets or, you know, in their home. People were appalled by this war that was happening in Vietnam. And then here was this novel that was also depicting how terrible war could be, but in this imaginary way. The book actually came out in March of 1969, when there was another terrible offensive and, and a lot of Americans died. So it was I think the uh, juxtaposition of these two wars and yet sort of the parallelism of the two wars was was just all there and so it just made people get his book and that's why yeah they claimed him this uh, 44-year-old frankly not he, he was not you know, a countercultural dude you know he was fairly midwestern yeah but and again an artist a, a writer but uh, he, he grew his hair out you know around that time it, it wasn't as long and poofy as, it you know, until after, you know, he, he started becoming claimed as this countercultural person. Yeah. So it does seem kind
0: of fair to say that the young people at the time who were protesting the Vietnam War were also hearing from the John Waynes of the world or the generation that was loudly reliving World War Two, who were saying, you know, you kids are you hippies have no idea of patriotism or sacrifice, you're a bunch of whiners and you didn't sign up to be heroes like my generation did and so on. And and the Vietnam generation saw in Vonnegut somebody who was saying, those are myths. War is horrible, it's not great. It's not. There's not a, a good war or a bad war, there's war that is kind of the overwhelming fact.
1: I think you're exactly right. I think the fact that he was closer to their parents' generation, made it all the more exciting and special like finally an old dude is saying it like it is and, and i think uh, yeah that's why he really pierced through the clutter yeah
0: there's also a, a thing i don't know if you see this in vonnegut as well where we look at war or events like 9-11 where we think oh the the good thing about that was we were so unified as a society you know, we had Rosie the Riveter and paper drives and rubber drives, or in 9-11, it was, you know, the Bush megaphone moment and the 90% approval rating. And it's too bad our society is so fractured these days that might never come back. And and Vonnegut might look at that and say, well, what were we unified around? Anger or revenge or willingness to go kill or the eagerness we had to smash stuff to feel better about ourselves. And, you know, it it led to torture and secret prisons and, and wars. I mean, it, it the unity or the unifying effect of it isn't necessarily all uh,
1: uh, an unmitigated positive. No, no, certainly not. And and he Vonnegut went against the grain as much as he could, not just to do it, but just because that's the way he thought. Yeah, He saw things as they were, not because other people saw them in the other direction. And he, he was totally appalled by... The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He died in 2007, but he had a good, uh, you know, several years of being totally depressed about it. And I I think some of his quotes about how he felt about those wars are just very sad. You know, he Mm. said that he said something. I'll I'll paraphrase. He said, I thought this country was going to be better. I thought it was going to be great. That's why I went to war. That's why I wrote books to contribute to its literature. But now look at us. We're a mess. And I think that's just so tragic to, to think that this guy had given everything, including fighting for, you know, you're risking his life to, in fighting in a war, to dedicating his life to, to writing books and then being just so you know appalled by the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And yeah, sure enough, lo and behold, he was proven right that those were wars that really shouldn't have been fought and certainly not in the way that they were.
0: I've got a quote I want to read to you of Vonnegut and then ask for your comment on it. This was after 9-11, and he was talking to someone who was asking, and interestingly, this is kind of fitting with what we said. The interviewer noted that even though Vonnegut had been a German prisoner of war, and you'd think he'd, he'd hate Nazis as much as anyone, he was quite upset still with the interviewer who was English, and he was talking about the Royal Air Force and what they had done in Dresden. And and this is kind of the against the grain that we're talking about, I think, is Vonnegut was willing to say, you know, there was villainy on on a bunch of different sides here. Mm. But the quote I wanted to read you is, Vonnegut saying, you know, every artist in the United States worth a shit was against the Vietnam War, which was cruelly stupid and unnecessary. So every writer, every painter, every poet, every musician was against the Vietnam War. And I have said it's like a laser beam where all the beams of light are aimed in one direction. And so all art, the total art world, and also a whole lot of other decent people would form this laser beam. Everyone (laughs) aimed at the Vietnam War to stop it. And the power of this weapon turned out to be that of a custard pie, two feet in <laughs> diameter, dropped from a step ladder six feet high. And then he laughed and said, it made no fucking difference.
1: It's so great. <laughs> Isn't That's that Vonnegut? It is. I mean, it just yeah. seems like
0: it's such a depressing idea. And you can imagine him thinking, you know, I mean, you, you can hardly imagine anything more hopeless than that for an artist to acknowledge that. Yeah. But it also has his kind of avuncular humor and his, you know, to imagine a custard pie two feet in diameter. It seems like he couldn't yeah. help himself from being creative and, you know, come up with this image like that. But do you think he thought art didn't matter or or wouldn't he have said that popular culture does at least, that it forms the way people think and and how we're trained to react to something like war?
1: Certainly. It's almost like, uh, don't do what I say, do what I do. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Look what he did. He he wrote all these novels. He wrote all these amazing, you know, uh, all this amazing nonfiction. Right. And that's what I was saying about Slaughterhouse-Five. People come out of reading that book and think it's kind of fun. I've spoken to so many people who've read that book, and they just thought it was this goofy uh, trip to outer space, to Charles and, you know, travel in time. And a lot of them don't get that Billy Pilgrim is severely traumatized and practically catatonic. And his ability to do that is similar to that quote, I think. It's his way of—he's able to denounce injustice and wrong and stupidity, but do it in a way that can be interpreted multiple ways. And that's what great art does. And and I, I, think, that, I, I think that that is I haven't thought of that quote in a while, and I do love that because— It's so strong, what he says. Mm. But I do think it's worth mentioning that, I mean, I don't recall exactly, but I'm assuming that's from the last five years of his life. Do you you have it? I
0: think it was maybe 2003 or 2004.
1: Yeah, so there's kind of this brimming debate about how we should discuss Vonnegut's outlook on life, because Mm. the definitive biography of him was by Charles Shields. It's called In So It Goes, and it came out in 2010. And that book paints a pretty sad portrait of Vonnegut because he spent a couple, you know, he met him a couple times just before he died in 2007. And um, he was bummed out. He was kind of like mm. bitching and whining Vonnegut about how he didn't get certain awards or he wasn't, you know, given the credit that he deserved. And and I think I mean, the guy was depressive. He was he was very depressive mm. throughout his life. And he fought that depression. And he wrote great work that actually is pretty hopeful. I mean, one book that comes to mind is uh, Bluebeard. Bluebeard, you know, it, that's kind of a positive book. And that came out in, like, I think the 80s, yeah. And so he was able to to sometimes spin things toward a positive vantage point. But he, he was dark. And, and I, I think he let us see the light and the humor. And hopefully we don't stick entirely with the darkness that, that he, you know, that emanated from him in yeah. many ways. Right.
0: And then... Even as we try to do that, it seems like we need to be careful about drawing some lines around the experience of war as the Tim O'Brien quote that starts your book says, if at the end of a war story you feel uplifted or if you feel that some small bit of rectitude has been salvaged from the larger waste, then you have been made the victim of a very old and terrible lie.
1: Yeah. So I am proud of the fact that I've I've paired Tim O'Brien with Kurt Vonnegut because I do feel like they speak to a similar Concept, which is that war is awful. They have different ways yeah. of doing it. For me, they represent uh, virtue and honesty and sincerity, and yet a, a clever artistic talent that is unfortunately pretty unique mm. um, and one that needs to really be you know, listened to. I think right now, I've, I've spoken to a, a lot of contemporary veteran writers and there's this one guy matt gallagher who's a a really good writer
0: we've had him on the show oh you have yeah
1: excellent yeah so matt's awesome so you know that yeah and matt was talking to me about how you know he's written a few books and he's kind of thinking maybe this whole like relativism thing that a lot of his 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 peers are doing isn't the right way maybe Mm -hmm. we should go back to the sort of thing that tim o'brien was doing which is like say let's call evil out say when it's bad and don't let go. Don't don't say that you know there are multiple perspectives and everyone has their own you know truth. Let's just call you know the truth as it is, because it seems like, I mean, I'll show my stripes now. It seems like the right has this like way of saying this is the truth and you know, the, you know these this is wrong, and then the left is kind of like ah oh, well we want to be kind of fair to everyone. And I, I think um, that there's a, a, a slippage there that that is dangerous. Yeah. And so I think I think that's what I think. Tim O'Brien, Kurt Vonnegut represent in many ways, is crying out in, in the dark against injustice and wrong and racism and all, all that bad stuff.
0: So in O'Brien's, in his vocabulary, when he calls it a very old and terrible lie, the lie there might be something like war is hell, but we saw courage or or we saw brotherhood. It was a, a time of, of unity or a time of courage or or purpose. And he's saying... That's just not the case. War is destructive and we need to not try to water it down by looking for green shoots in the apocalyptic landscape.
1: Yeah, it's a hard thing to get one's head around, I think. Yeah. It it takes takes a lot of parsing. But I think in his position, he wants to take that stand. And I think that's a very admirable and and needed. It's a necessary stand to say, even if we talk about war being you know, a band of brothers, even if you talk about the good things that can come out of war and, and the exhilaration that those guys feel, you've got to recognize that the end result of war is people dying and people being traumatized. And so if that overwhelms any of that other good stuff, so yeah, even though that stuff might be true, you know, that stuff might be true. And 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 I've in my book I talk about Carl Marlentes, another really great writer who fought in the Vietnam War. Carl Wants to celebrate some of the good stuff about war. He's willing to say that even though he's himself has suffered terrible PTSD Um, but he's in a sort of um, I guess an intellectual debate with with his friend Tim O'Brien about it and um I I mean, I lean toward the Tim O'Brien's because I think it's important to be able to say that because otherwise We slip into these wars over and over again and young people, you know, it's always it's always, you know the 20 year olds who end up fighting the damn wars so and, and they're they're misled. They are being misled every time. You know, you're 21 and stupid, and you're and you're like, okay, I'll fight for my country, and and the, you know, it seems like I'm going to get a lot out of it. I'm going to test myself, and there's not enough of the message that you're going to end up, you know, severely damaged by this, whether or not you make it out of it alive. Yeah. So
0: tell us about the book, Kurt Vonnegut, Nazi Slayer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so when I started writing this book. The mission for me was write a book about Sawdars 5. And I didn't want to just write lit crit. You know, I, I, I just mm-hmm. felt like that's been done a zillion times. I wanted to bring something new to the discussion. I wanted to bring Sawdars 5 to our age, to 2021, 2022. And um, it took me a little while, actually. I, I was like doing a lot of reading and I was doing a lot of writing and talking to a lot of people. And then I came upon this incredible story that made my heart beat really, really fast because mm. there was this rumor that I was became privy to about something that Vonnegut had done during World War II that had never been talked about before. Yeah, And um, it was pretty much a war crime that he had committed. And so as a journalist, I thought, okay, let me find out about this. This is really interesting. What if it's true? And then as I explored it more and more, And pretty convinced it's not true, although I can't say 100% it's not true. I realized that my pursuit of that story could be something that I could really hang a lot of, at least the beginning of the book, because I I want people to recognize that Vonnegut is alive today. You know, no, he's not, he's dead. But, you know, his, his spirit, his writing is alive today. And what he did and what he's done to our culture and how he lives in our culture is all alive today. And so, I, I wanted to tell a story that I thought would um, sort of emulate some of the, what I think is interesting about Vonnegut, some of what he, I think he wrote about. And I, I will say that I've spoken to at least one of his kids who um, appreciated that after she's read the book. So I feel like I'm in safe enough territory. Having gone there.
0: So that's the book you didn't write. And how (laughs) would you describe the one that you did write? You started to get at it a little bit, but what should listeners know if they're headed out to pick up your book?
1: Well, to me, uh, what I try to do is I try to write a biographical and literary exploration of of, of Slaughterhouse Five. So Vonnegut did it himself, he brought himself into that book. He's his voice, he's did his first person in the first chapter, in the last chapter, and three times with throughout in, 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 in the in-between chapters. And so he teased us, right? He teased us by saying, This is the book that I'm writing, it's a fiction book. But then he also basically said, This is a book about me. Yeah. And so by yeah. doing that, I think he opened the gates and he allowed me, a writer like me, to say, All right, let's look at Kurt Vonnegut's life. Let's look at the, the life of this book as a, as a work of literature. Let's see where they meet and let's see how they apply today. And what I thought was most interesting about that is this question of whether or not Billy Pilgrim has war trauma and that's what's caused his trips to Trafalmador and back and forth in time. My answer to that is a definitive yes. Hmm. I mean, I'm far from the first person to say that. But then the next question I think is, okay, does that mean that vonnegut himself experienced war trauma and that's the question that I won't answer you know in our conversation but that's what you know kept me going to the end of this and and ultimately my book is just a way to say read House five again it will you know delight you and, and it'll meet you where you are because it's 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 a masterpiece yeah
0: and also spend some time which we get to do with your book with Kurt Vonnegut, I don't mind at all that you brought in his life as well, because he's such a fascinating person and he's so endlessly creative and interesting in his conversation. It it seems like every day of his life, he was just thinking interesting things and saying interesting things.
1: I I totally agree. And, And that's why I'm so lucky. I spent two years being with Vonnegut and and thinking about him and laughing at his jokes and, you know, watching the few YouTube videos of him and talking to his kids and, and just seeing the way his kids would uh, you know say things that reminded me of him. And he, like you said, he, he is a joy to be with, you know, I think a lot of us are huge fans of him. Uh, we miss him. We are, we're yearning to see him again. And, and hopefully, yeah, my book does a little bit of that. Mm.
0: Well, the book is called the writer's crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the many lives of slaughterhouse five. We are coming up on the holidays. This is another one to put on your wish list or the gift-buying list of the Vonnegut fans in your life. Tom Roston, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
1: Thanks. It's been really fun talking to you.
0: Okay, there we go. My thanks to Tom Rostin for being here. His book is called The Writer's Crusade, Kurt Vonnegut and the Many Lives of Slaughterhouse-Five, available now at bookstores everywhere. And worth the read, people. Especially if you like Kurt Vonnegut and would like to see what made him tick. A fascinating guy. And Tom Roston is a worthy guide. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.